So iron sharpened iron sharpens iron. We read in Proverbs twenty seven seventeen. And, you know, I started to say that I think iron sharpens iron most acutely across the lines of difference. You know, even even the idea of uh, a man and woman in marriage, you know, they're different. God has made us different. And so, uh, and if you're like me, you know, I thought that I had lots to offer my wife is, you know, lots of wisdom. I was a seminary graduate by the time I got married. I said, you know, I got this this whole sanctification thing on, you know, and check, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help her out a little bit. And then we, we get married and we move into this 556 square foot apartment. And there was times we were just staring at each other like, who in the world are you? Like, where's the woman I married? Where's the guy I married? You know, it happens. It's okay. But you stick with it. And because of it, you're better. Those are the rough edges beginning to rub off of each other. So um, I think iron sharpens iron best. yes across the lines of difference. And so one of the things that we haven't availed ourselves to as much as possible as, as we could have is learning across the lines of race. And so uh, I really do, do want to begin to celebrate some of these fantastic elements of, you know, and I'm going to use sort of broad brush terms, the black church and white church. You know, there's, yes, there's all sorts of different types of, you know, churches, but um, just generically speaking, if, if you don't want to be here for seven hours, and be talking about like all the different sort of cultural, you know, uh, churches and their different affinities and their desires and their likes and dislikes, and comparing and contrasting, which I do have a class on that if you're interested, but we don't have to do that here. So broad, broad stroking, black church, white church, and then we can k- just kind of see how this fusses itself out. And so my goal in this next 30 minutes, probably like 25 minutes now, is twofold. First is to demonstrate how rich the sharpening would be if black and white Christians would begin to learn from each other. And so, as I was saying before, I spent a lot of time in sort of both contexts. I'm this guy who doesn't really fit in anywhere. Uh, And I'm just seeing the rich traditions on both sides. And I'm like, if we can just get together, how awesome would that be? And so, because I've had these thoughts and I have a microphone, and you don't, you have to listen to me ramble about them for a little, a little bit. So my second goal is also to offer more of a history lesson as well, give you more history about uh, like just the church and how it's developed as it has. So, but this is my caveat before I jump into this. Don't settle for just this talk tonight. Don't take me at my word for it. Because I, I think that in a culture that understands wisdom, to be simply knowing information. We settle for reading about people or hearing a talk about people, and we assume that we know them and can be transformed by their uh, experiences, but we can't. We need to take on, uh, as Christ did, as we read in John 1.14, the circumstances and the location of another. He became flesh and he dwelt among us. So we need to be incarnate to actually have this stuff be transformational. But to give you a taste, I want to give you a couple things uh, for us to begin to, to look to. But before I do that, <laughs> this is my 25 prefaces, I guess. As I was writing this out, I wasn't aware that I was like prefacing my prefaces. And my, but here we go. This is my last one before we go. The Christian faith develops in a context, Okay. The, the Christian faith and its expression in the church is like a coffee bean. I'll say it that way. 
<laughs> I got to chuckle. But it is, I promise. Because if you take, you know, a, a plant and then you put the coffee bean one in Hawaii, one in South America, and one in Africa, you can market them as three different types of coffee. But the integrity of the coffee bean is still there. And so the coffee bean takes up parts of the soil in which it's planted. The same thing is for the church. The church takes up parts of the soil in which it's planted, and it is the church. The, the body of Christ does you know, have a, a calling and a mission, but it takes on a unique flavor in the context in which it finds itself. You guys still with me on that? And so if you, th- if you think about the, historically the African-American experience and the Caucasian experience in America, the church that has risen up in both communities, but it's taken on the flavor of those traditions in those, in those contexts. And so that's why we can begin to talk about you know, some of the dis- distinctions between the two, but then how we can learn from each other. Okay? So finally, the first point I, d- I do want to talk about is worship style. Worship style. So you have those who are more subdued in their worship style and others who are more expressive in their worship style. Yeah, I'm getting the chuckles. This is going to be good. This is going to be good. So why subdued worship? I mean, if you, if you go back in history, there are um, some folks who the Christian faith became more bookish. Like reading and cultivating the life of the mind, deep thoughtfulness about God, and I think that is excellent. So again, these are, these, are, these are good things that I'm saying about the tradition. So with this, um, th- there really was this um, idea of just thinking deeply about God, which is a very sort of quiet exercise, very subdued exercise. A colleague of mine uh, who was very well-meaning at Southeastern Seminary, who's actually a really good friend, he says because of the tradition that he grew up in, he explained to the class that worship is only appropriate when it's respectfully done and it's quiet and in order. And I thought about it and I said, well, that that's uh, has with it the assumption that, you know, it's disrespectful and dishonoring to God to worship with gladness and excitement. And so by implication, the worship of many black churches is seen as irreverent or dishonoring to God. And so, uh, so please understand, I'm saying that, yes, this deep cognitive sort of thinking about God is wonderful. But I think it's only part of the story of the Christian life. Bless you. The more expressive side, if we revisit the idea of literacy again, uh, if you think about the context of the African-American church in the, in the formative years of black Christianity, it was illegal for a black person to know how to read. The slave codes and then after the Emancipation Proclamation, the black codes made it illegal for blacks to learn how to read. Why? Because especially prior to the Emancipation Proclamation, there was fear of African-Americans reading the Bible and then seeing if my soul is free, then my body should be free with it. Because God has made me as a whole person and not as this thing that can be split apart. So a slave master would read the scripture and say, well, your soul is free, but your body belongs to me. But then, uh, then they read the Bible for themselves. If they could, and some could, which is why there was some, it actually fueled some slave revolts 
people running free because they wanted their soul and their body to not be torn in two. So needless to say, uh, black Christianity is not, you know, essentially, especially in its early years, a bookish faith. And for for black Christians, that the faith has been an equal and opposite force to external oppression in society. And so I want to explain that very quickly. So there was, you know, in slavery and in Reconstruction and the failure of Reconstruction and Jim Crow segregation and then in de facto racism in society, there is this sort of external sort of force of racial oppression pushing in on a people. But what was interesting is that there had to be something pushing out against that for the people to still stand. And for Christians, what welled up inside of them was the Christian faith was this expression of Christ being Lord. And so it really had to be because of the force of the external oppression, this sort of inward reality had to be vibrant and powerful, you see? And so this worship that was very expressive and demonstrative was the very thing that allowed them to go outside and be spat upon and have dogs biting them. This is what was going on in the civil rights movement when people would sit at lunch counters and be spat upon and meals thrown in their face and sit peacefully. Not that everybody sat peacefully, but I think if you begin to read some of those accounts, much of it was because there was this thing that was inside them that was fueling them, and it was very vibrant and alive. And I think this is what we see expressed in many African-American churches. And so... What I'm saying is that um, I think there are these two sort of ways of, I mean, of course, every African-American church is not like, you know, the same because, I mean, even someone like um, uh, Alexander Payne, just after the Emancipation Proclamation, was trying to move African-Americans as a whole towards a more subdued way of worshiping. But on the whole, if you go to an African-American church, it's going to be a little more lively. (laughs) So... What's going on there? I think this is the case. God has made us mind, body, and soul. And I just sort of get that from Matthew 22, uh, 37. And Jesus calls his followers to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and your mind. And what we find is that in these different traditions, as a result of the context in which we find ourselves, Love God with one part of our human constitution more than other parts. You see? So on the one hand, just because of the tradition of the, the, the literary emphasis, sort of pondering the depths of God because there's the access to, to literature and, uh, and to, to schooling and what have you, there's this life of the mind, you know, mind, body, and soul, which is definitely a part of who we are that is just sort of, it's just easier and more natural for that to be the way in which folks worship which is a more subdued way but then uh, on the other side you have you know worshiping with the heart and the soul which is a very vibrant sort of interaction that's a part of who we are too but both or all three are part of what it means to be fully human you see because god has made us you know with all three and so as opposed to uh making a straw man out of each other i think we have lots to learn from each other So the more subdued should see the more expressive as not just merely being emotional and out of order, but rather they should be encouraged to cultivate 
their own faith that is more cognitively driven and engage their soul as well. So utilizing the understanding that they have to then engage the fullness of who they are to get excited about the truths of God and allow that to exude from them. And also the more expressive should see the more subdued worshiper as having as not having had less of an experience of the gospel, but rather they can be encouraged to engage their their own mind to know God, uh, to know the God that fuels their worship. So you see, uh, we can all end up falling off of one side of the horse. But really, if we were worshiping with those who were, you know, prone towards different types of worship styles, I think we would actually be more human, so to speak, in our worship than we actually are now. Because you have that person, if you're, if you're the one who thinks deeply about Christ and you're next to someone who is just excited, that, that makes you think, but it just draws you into that excitement. If you're someone who's more excited and you're, you know, and you're very passionate, passionate about Christ, the person who's more cognitive and learned in their faith can begin to allow you to express more clearly the Christ you love so then you can then be more excited about the true God of the Bible because you guys were friends with each other. This is one of the ways that our worship styles can be uh, something that's celebrated in the traditions and that we can learn from each other. But, but too often we settle for making strawmen out of each other so that we don't have to learn from each other. So worship styles is one. Oh, I'm actually doing pretty good. <laughs> On time, that is, at least. Discipleship is the second one. Discipleship. Individual discipleship slash personal piety is one way of thinking about becoming more like Christ. So why the focus on personal piety? Again, uh, moving back to this idea of literacy, this is the last time I mentioned it, it fosters a desire to pursue knowledge and being soaked in Scripture, which is obviously a good thing. So in addition, as time passes, um, in the West, we've seen that uh, secular ideas about the authority of God have sort of you know, creeped into the church. And so in the beginning, when God created, God's authority was as, the f- as far as the curse is found, or as far as creation is found. So God created, and he had the ability to speak into all of it. And then as time passed, especially in the West, it says, well, God can speak into the church. Well, then God can speak into the life of the individual. And the places where we see God working and having authority have shrunk and shrunk. And unfortunately, at times, the church has just gone along with it. And so now, for, for those who, who have a focus on this personal piety or individual discipleship, it's sort of as a result of, yes, soaking in Scripture for yourself. Which is a good thing. It's a very good thing. But at the same time, there is uh, a God who's crying out mine over the entirety of creation as well as over the individual. And so, so now that's sort of like the individual sort of impetus, but also public discipleship. And so you guys are like, public discipleship? What in the world is that? That's this is why we should all be friends. <laughs> the, in the black church... It was the epicenter of the community, especially after the Emancipation Proclamation during Reconstruction. 
It was the one place where African Americans could govern themselves, lead themselves. Throughout the week, they were seen as boy or other derogatory names, but on Sunday, they were Deacon Smith or Reverend Jones. They were ordained ministers. And so this is the one place where they were African Americans to lead themselves and program for themselves and do all these sorts of things to to um, to be free within the confines, in a sense, of the church house. And so the church, as a result, filled several purposes. The first one is being a spiritual outpost. The black church was a spiritual outpost in the community, obviously, because there was worship services. There was prayer. There was, you know, song sung and and what have you. There's all sorts of um things that pointed the people to Christ. But secondly, it was a social hub, which, you know, there was all sorts of programs that would go on, go on throughout the week because there was no access to other places for those programs to happen. And so, I mean, and this tradition lingers within the African-American church tradition even now where you always, I mean, there's always back-to-school programs at black churches. There's always... Uh, after-school programs there, there's summer programs, there's this and that, and the building is used for multiple purposes throughout the week because that's just tra- the tradition in which it was established. And then lastly, there's, it's the political nerve center as well. The political nerve center, because pastors were the most educated folks um, in any church, especially uh, after the Emancipation Proclamation, after the Civil War. And in the African-American community in particular, Pastors had the rhetorical ability to be able to advocate on behalf of their parishioners in a way that was very unique. And those who were pastors of larger churches, they would be able to escape the economic um, difficulty of speaking out for their people because they worked and drew a salary from African-Americans and not white people. Often, if you had a, a pastor who was bi- bivocational, they would their uh, jobs would all of a sudden be taken from them. They'd be fired from their jobs because they spoke out against the status quo, you see? So these pastors were the ones who were the politicians. And so during Reconstruction, more than 230 black clergymen held state and national office. And the first African-American to win a Senate seat was an AME church cleric from Mississippi. And so it's within this tradition for the pastor and the political leader to be one and the same. A, a quick uh, modern tidbit about this. Um, uh, do, you, do you remember Clemente Pinckney? He was the pastor of Emmanuel Amy Church in Charleston uh, where Dylan Roof killed those nine people. So when uh, President Obama came and did the funeral, the, the eulogy for him, he said for, for many to understand that he was a pastor and a politician just doesn't quite seem to go together. But whoever wrote his speeches did their research because he says, we don't know the tradition. That's why we see it as this thing that really doesn't fit. And this is the tradition that he's talking about. Clemente Pinckney stood in the, in the tradition where the pastor and the politician were, were virtually one and the same because they had to be at the time. And so when we talk about political discipleship, it's talking about becoming a person who can um, live out the imperatives of Christ in public space. So on the one hand, we have the person who is um, dedicated towards the, uh, the cultivation of the soul and these individual sort of practices of personal piety, which are definitely necessary. And then on the other hand, we have someone who is outward facing into the world, 
with their Christian faith. And this is very important to the African-American community because the, they, they had no, no recourse to much else. So it was the faith in Christ and its imperatives of being made in God's image that they had to begin to work throughout the rest of society because that wasn't the case, or at least it wasn't what society said about them. So it was a Christian faith that drove this sort of uh, move towards um, being equal in society. And so I spent a little bit more time on that because sometimes we don't understand the idea or the concept of public discipleship. Becoming more like Christ and then making that imperative known, uh, making God's imperatives known in society. So what can the person who focuses on personal piety or personal discipleship and public discipleship learn from each other? Here we go. Advocates of personal piety or discipleship must understand that Christ came to redeem again as far as the curse is found. So yes, there is this cultivation of the person to honor God, but it extends beyond there. And the places where we find brokenness in society, it's given to the Christian to be able to try their best to be a demonstration of the reconciling power of the gospel in those spaces as a sign to the kingdom that's to come. As ministers of reconciliation, this is our task. And so for the advocates of public discipleship, they must ensure that their public action does not uh, become devoid of a genuine testimony to Christ. Because in, in contexts where there's this influence or this uh, emphasis on the public outworkings of the faith, oftentimes it can become so caught up with the things it's doing out there that it loses the Christ that, the Christ that began as its impetus. And so uh, both sides, again, need to come together and then you have folks who are, you know, uh, naturally more inclined to have to cultivate the the inner person, which is a good thing. Then you have others who are more prone to look outside of the church and try to push back the gates of hell, so to speak, in public life. The two should come together. And I think that we, we would have a more faithful testimony to what the scripture is calling the church to do uh, if we did it together as opposed to apart. But again, we just settle for looking across the aisle, so to speak, or across the street uh, and settle for making caricatures of each other. So we talked about worship style, talked about discipleship, and then we can talk, let's talk about theology. Oh, ten minutes. Yes. I'm actually proud of myself. I'm working within the confines of what I've been given. I'm like skipping stuff and like... Yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just playing with you. You know this. So, talking about theology, the question on the floor is this. Does theology have to do primarily with God or with man? Does theology have to do primarily with God or with man? Theology, in my estimation, is a dance between knowledge of God and knowledge of man. And for those of you guys who are doubting me, I'm going to use John Calvin to prove my point. He says this in the Institutes. Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, knowing God and knowing ourselves. 
And so these two types of knowledge are indispensable and each depends on the other. But depending upon the context, this is me talking now, depending, on, depending upon the context from which you've come, it shapes the way that you begin to, to look at this. So on the one hand, you might be inclined to think of talking about theology more about talking about God, beginning with God and just staying talking about God. On the other hand, you can begin to, you know, have a, a, a tradition that sort of focuses you on talking about humanity. Many of you guys are like, what are you talking about? Which is exactly why I'm not done yet. <coughs> so theology beginning with a focus on God. This is probably the, the, the tradition that this church sits in, which is a good tradition. So this idea of theology from above is a theology that starts with the contemplation of God and then begins to look upon the human situation. So starting with, okay, who is God? What is he doing? Who is Christ? And then after like all those ducks are in a row, okay, now let's talk about application. You see? Theology beginning from a focus on man, which is sort of a theology from below, is a theology that emerges as a means of addressing issues in human existence. A theology that emerges as a means of addressing issues of human existence. And so this is just another way of looking at theology. So it's almost like, holy cow, look at all these things that are going on in the world. God, what do you say about this? You see? And so neither of which, in essence, are, are better or worse than the other. But we usually sort of begin to group up with people who do it similarly than us, or do the same as us, and we sort of like go this way from each other. <laughs> so uh, I, I do want to give an illustration talking about the person of Christ, and then uh, we can draw some conclusions from that. So those who um, have a theology from above, beginning focusing on God, looking at the person of Christ, they focus on the beginning and the end of Christ's life. Because that's where all the salvation stuff is. You know, to have salvation, you have to have a, a God who was born, born of a virgin. You have to have a God who was, had a virgin conception. And um, it's because of he has no earthly father, he has a heavenly father, that he is both the God and man. And then, oftentimes, folks who, st who look at Christ or theology from above then jump to the end of his life. Because this is where the death and the resurrection happen. So, for, the, for, for folks that are of this disposition, the beginning and the end of life, of Christ's life is where all the good stuff is. The middle, okay, he did stuff. But, you know, it's all about the beginning and the end. You guys see what I'm saying, though? And so, because that's where the, that's where the money is, so to speak. I'm not sure why I said that. But that's where, the, that's where the emphasis should be, I guess. But, so, oftentimes the goal is to analyze Christ and sort of develop these propositional truth statements about him. So we look at Christ, and then we, be, we begin to sort of, you know, hold him up and try to make, say true things about him. Look, okay, Christ was, you know, the God-man. He was this, he was that, he was, you know. And then we just begin to sort of like analyze him as like we're looking at like a paradigm and just sort of, sort of standing farther away from him, okay? Yet trying to figure out more about him. So theologians who look at God this way and Christians who look at God this way, they neglect the middle of Christ's life. So those who look at, who do theology beginning with the human experience, 
they usually try to jump in to the middle of Christ's life often because they can identify with him. Because they say, well, Christ had nowhere to lay his head. Well, we don't have a place to lay our head. Christ fed the hungry. We're hungry. Christ healed the sick. We don't have health insurance. Christ was oppressed and rose above it. We are oppressed and we too hope to rise above it. And so you guys can see how the folks who begin reading the Bible or folks who have a a very difficult experience on this earth will be drawn to identifying with Christ in that way. And so um, there's strengths and and weaknesses on both sides here. And I think if we actually came together and worshiped Christ together, that we would begin to rub the weaknesses off of each other. And so strengths and weaknesses for the theology from above, folks. The strength is that it's salvific. If you understand that the God-man came to earth, died in our place, rose again because he was taking on the sin that we Uh, that divided us from our Heavenly Father and rose again to be the champion over death, you can be saved. This is that first ten verses of Ephesians that we looked at. But the weakness is, is this. There is not much relational or emotive tie to the Christ that brings us salvation if we only look at Him and just analyze Him as though He's this thing to be studied under a microscope as opposed to being loved and, and having an affection with and relationship with. And so, strengths of weakness from the, those who look at theology from below. The strength is that if you want to summarize the totality of Christ in one word, it's identification. And so Christ, He identifies with us in several ways. He becomes a person in the incarnation. He, he hungers. He thirsts. He uh, has emotional hurt, physical pain, and then he dies to identify with us as people because he himself is God. And so he took on humanity, then he died, but then he rose again. And then so those who are in Christ will now identify with him and rise again. And so identification is a fantastic way to understand who Christ is. And so the the, the good part of this, the strength of this is, is that people can send themselves literally into the narrative of Scripture. And so as opposed to looking at Christ as he's this thing to be studied, it's like I'm with Christ, I'm identifying with, I'm in the stories. And so this is, a, a sort of, for those of you who like biblical interpretation, this is one of the fantastic ways that we can study Christ in, you know, as, yes, we need to understand who he is, we need to be able to articulate the truths about him, but we also need to be near him. We need to put ourselves in the story. The, you know, when we lost our daughter, I, I identified so closely with Jairus when he came to Christ, begging, you need to come to my house and save my daughter. Like I was, it wasn't just like I was standing back and saying, well, does Christ have to heal? Must he heal? Can he heal? And what worlds can he not heal? I mean, like there's, there's space for that, for that sort of interaction. But for me, I was just a man whose daughter was sick and so was Jairus. You know, can, can you at some point identify with Zacchaeus in the tree who just wanted to see the face of hope and then hope saying, I'm having dinner at your house. Like, we have to be able to, yes, analyze. 
which is like the sort of theology from above sort of way of looking at Christ, but also from below, a very, you know, earthy, he's with us sort of way. And the thing is about the tradition is that we, d- we do this very well, but we do it in isolation. If we were able to come together and have this conversation and just live out Christ together, we would have the best of both traditions. And I think that is extremely powerful. And so, in conclusion, Scripture is clear. We have lots to learn from each other. But the way that the church is now begins to cauterize us off from the very thing that God has given us to prevent us from falling into the pitfalls of our past. And that's each other. And so hopefully, um, through this conversation today, you've seen in Scripture that God is doing a work of bringing all people to Himself. And that's not just good news for the future, it's good news now. And then also how our history as a country sort of prohibits that. But there is, in, there is so much richness that we can learn from each other if we actually were able to overcome that and get together. And so the question is now for you guys, well, we got lots of problems. Politics divide us. The way that we look at, you know, a variety of social issues divide us. You know, what do we do with Black Lives Matter? What do we do with, and the, and the list goes on of stuff that needs to be dealt with. And that's my commercial for the next time because we're going to jump into all that stuff and much, much more. But uh, now we're going to have a little Q&A. And so, here we go.